Good evening, and welcome to this Outbeat Extra, a continuing celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Making Gay History. I'm Greg Moralia. And I'm Eric Marcus, host of the Making Gay History podcast. The June 1969 riots at New York's Stonewall Inn are often described as the start of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. But our history as a community and a movement started way before those explosive summer nights 50 years ago. This year on Outbeat Extra, I'm going to share with you some of the archival interviews I recorded with people who changed the world. Their stories and their work are mostly absent from the history books, but they contributed to the movement that got us to where we are today, in ways you might know about, but probably don't. And their experiences and recollections take my breath away. We're really excited to be partnering with Eric Marcus and making gay history. Eric's an accomplished author with several gay history books and biographies to his credits. He's the founder of MakingGayHistory.com and the Making Gay History podcast. So stay with us. Our first interview of the night is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 29th, 2019. Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of September 29th, 2019. A federal judge has ruled that an anti-LGBTQ Florida-based church, James Kennedy Ministries, can be labeled as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a matter of free speech. Although the court didn't decide on whether the church itself is an actual hate group, the Southern Poverty Law Center says the church maligns the entire LGBT community. The church and its corporate entity, Coral Ridge Ministries Media, sought to sue the Southern Poverty Law Center, stating that the group illegally trafficked false and misleading descriptions of the services offered by the church and committed defamation against the church arising from the publication and distribution of false information. The church also sought to sue the online retailer Amazon because the Southern Poverty Law Center's designation rendered it ineligible for charitable contributions through Amazon's giving programs, as well as GuideStar, an organization that connects donors to grantmakers to nonprofit organizations, who also dropped the church. Judge Myron Thompson of the U.S. District Court in Montgomery, Alabama, tossed out the lawsuit, basically stating that free speech rights allow the Southern Poverty Law Center to label the church as a hate group if it wants to. And a U.S. federal court judge in Maryland has also thrown out another lawsuit challenging that state's ban on so-called ex-gay reparative therapy, stating that it doesn't violate anyone's freedom of speech or religious freedom. Ex-gay practitioner Christopher Doyle sued the state of Maryland, with the help of the Liberty Council, another Southern Poverty Law Center-designated hate group that regularly mounts legal challenges against laws protecting LGBTQ people. According to the Associated Press, U.S. District Court Judge Deborah Chassanel ruled that, quote, reparative therapy doesn't prevent licensed therapists from expressing their personal views about conversion therapy to minor clients. The law only prohibits conversion therapy when it is conducted by licensed practitioners on minors and prohibits only speech uttered in the process of conducting conversion therapy. And in San Francisco, Maiden Zamir, a gay man, became the new Deputy Consul General of the Consulate General of Israel to the Pacific Northwest. The consulate serves Israelis living in Northern California, Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. This is Zamir's second posting in the United States. Prior to this assignment, he spent four years in Boston before returning to Tel Aviv for a year. Zamir, who turns 38 this week, and his American partner of nearly three years, say they are excited to be living in San Francisco. 
Zamir has already become a Warriors fan, and the couple are avid wine connoisseurs and can't wait to explore California's wine country. And don't forget, next weekend, the Outwatch LGBTQ Film Festival begins on Friday at 7 p.m. and continues through the weekend, happening at the Rialta Cinemas in Sebastopol. The lineup includes some amazing LGBTQ films, so check it out. And get your tickets now online at outwatchfilmfest.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Hi there, Eric Marcus here. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. A little favor that could make a big difference to us. It would be great if you could spend a couple of short minutes filling out a survey for us. Learning more about you will help us make the best show possible. And it can help us when we ask funders for the support we need to make this podcast. I'd be so grateful if you could give us a moment of your time and go to makinggayhistory.com slash survey and answer a few questions to help us hone and fund Making Gay History. Got that? Makinggayhistory.com slash survey. You're the best. Thanks. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. This week, you'll meet Dr. Evelyn Hooker. She was something else, a force of nature, even at 81. But you have to be a force of nature to do what she did when she did it. Back in 1953, Dr. Hooker started work on a first-of-its-kind psychological study that demonstrated gay men were no different from straight men when it came to their sanity. At that time, just about everyone thought gay people were mentally ill. Homosexuality was a sickness. Even most gay people believed it. And what do you do when you're sick? You try to get cured. And that's what a lot of gay people did. So they spent years and fortunes trying to get over an illness they didn't even have. The really unlucky ones were forced against their will into horrible treatments that were nothing short of torture. Lobotomy, chemical castration, and shock treatment. And I'm really not kidding. Those were the ways in which gay people were treated. This is a story about serendipity a pivotal moment in history when a gay psychology student named Sam Fromm set his sights on Dr. Evelyn Hooker. He urged Dr. Hooker to do a study of normal gay people to show the world what they were really like. That was in 1945. And then life got in the way, and Dr. Hooker set aside Sam's project. You can read about this part of Dr. Hooker's life on our website, makinggayhistory.com. So now it's 1953, when Dr. Hooker gets back to her work. She found the men she needed, she gave them psychological tests, and then got top psychologists to review the results. When you hear Dr. Hooker talk about someone named Bruno, that's Dr. Bruno Klopfer, a German psychologist. He was one of the study's judges. So in August 1989, I fly out to Los Angeles, and I drive my rented convertible, because it's Los Angeles, to Dr. Hooker's apartment in Santa Monica. It's just a couple of blocks from the beach. She welcomes me into her double-height living room. Bookshelves reach to the ceiling. And I just about choke on the air. It's saturated with smoke and nicotine. And I'm thinking, please, God, don't smoke through the whole interview. But she does. Before we sit down, Dr. Hooker shows me her small office. It's lined with cabinets filled with the files of the 60 men she studied. The contents of those cabinets change the course of history. We head back into the living room. Dr. Hooker leads the way. and She walks really slowly and deliberately. She's got spinal arthritis and gingerly lowers her six-foot frame into her high-backed leather easy chair. I clip the microphone to her blouse. She lights a cigarette and draws deeply. And I press record.
Interview with Dr. Evelyn Hooker, Sunday, August 20th, 1989. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Location is the home of Dr. Hooker in Los Angeles, California. They wanted us to come to dinner. We went to dinner. His lover was introduced as his cousin, a much older man, George. And <laughs> you wouldn't believe, since you didn't live then, you would not believe how gay men, they could put on a business suit, no humor. They were afraid to have me know that they, were, they wanted my approval so much that they were afraid to let me know that they were gay. Anyway, uh, delicious dinner. And uh, gradually, they became very good friends. He still hadn't told you that he was gay? No I don't even know. I, uh, oh, yes, gradually the facade came down, because they thought that I didn't care what they were like. Mm -hmm. I liked them. I found them to be very interesting people. Came to be very fond of them. And I don't even remember a time when, and I'm sure it wasn't a time when somebody said, look, we're gay. Now you better, <laughs> right. you know, there was nothing like that. It was just a very gradual letting down of air. After I'd known him about, I would say, about a year, we were invited by Sam and George to go with them on a uh, holiday, on Thanksgiving holiday to San Francisco. We get to San Francisco, and the first night or second night we're there, Sammy insists that we should go to Finocchio's. My eyes were wide. I'd never seen anything like that. What was Finocchio's like then? Oh, my God. Well, there were, are, are they still there, the two old bags from Oakland? I don't, I don't know. Uh, okay. But for, for people who won't know what it is, right. can you just describe what the place was like? Well, uh, it was, of course, a tourist place. It was not really, it was not a gay bar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, to be sure, they served drinks. But it was essentially a tourist place for primarily, as I saw it at least, for transvestites or would-be transvestites or transsexuals. And of course, there, there, uh, it was altogether a, a different kind of world. <laughs> they had a lot of patter, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. a female patter, uh -huh. they thought. And it was, it was funny. It was, I'm sure they're dead by now, and that's yeah. a shame. They were, they were great. I thought they were great. <laughs> so you went back to the Fairmont. We went back to the Fairmont. We sat down. We we're going to have a snack before we went to bed. Now, he said, we have let you see us as we are. And it is now your scientific duty to make a study of people like us. Imagine that. And by people like us, he meant we don't, we don't need psychiatrists. We don't need psychologists. We're not insane. We're not any of those things they say we are. I said, but I couldn't, I couldn't study you because you're my friends. And I couldn't be objective about you. And to which he replied, we can get you a hundred men, any number of men you want. You're the person to do it. You know us, and you have the training. But why would he want you to do a study? What was the purpose of doing a study about these? The purpose of doing a study was to show the world what we're really like. I could understand there was, ex there was, there was excitement about doing something that you felt was going to be groundbreaking, whatever happened because it would have been the first time anybody ever looked at this behavior and said, now, we'll use scientific tests to determine is this pathological or not. And all this time everyone had said it was pathological Absolutely. without any studies. Without any studies. They represented, even in that relatively small group, they represented a, a cross-section 
of personality, of talent, of background, of uh, adjustment, of mental health. The whole kit and caboodle was there. So even by then you knew that the current thinking was incorrect? But I had to prove it. Dr. Evelyn Hooker, Tape 2, Side 1. I had just heard that the National Institute of Mental Health had been founded. And I said to myself, gee, well, I think what I'll do is to apply to the National Institute of Mental Health. If they think this project is worth doing, if study section thinks this is worth doing, I'll do it. The chief of the grants division flew out and spent the day with me. He wanted to see what type of coop this was. Is she really crazy or can she do this? At the end of the day, he said, I'll tell you we're prepared to make you this grant. I decided with the consultation with my statistical consultant, Dr. Gingerelli, that we would settle for a small group. There's 30, 30 in each group, 30 heterosexuals, 30 homosexuals. But the problem was getting the straight people, the straight men. Why? Well, remember, this is early 50s. I was just at my wit's end to find uh, people who were of the general educational, economic, etc. level of my gay group. And one day, I was sitting in the study, and I heard some steps coming down the driveway, and I looked out, and there were blue trousers legs, four of them, and I said, oh boy. And <laughs> so uh, it turns out that, that they were firemen, and they were from our local fire department, and they were over, they were looking at uh, our fire precautions. So I walked over to talk to them. One of them said, uh, oh, you're a writer. And I said, well, no, not exactly. I'm a psychologist. Oh, he said, I have two boys, and they're in a psychology experiment at UCLA. And I said, oh, would you be willing to be in a psychology experiment? Oh, no, I couldn't do that, he said. I said, well, wait a minute. What about on your days off? And he said, well, then I have to take care of my boys. I said, what if I pay the babysitter? Finally, he broke down and said, okay. Uh, he introduced me to a cop. And did I learn about the ins and outs of the police department downtown? And he wanted to come to me because it turns out he was having marital trouble and he hoped that he could exchange a little information for me. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I tell you, there's nothing more interesting than human beings. Anyway, at that time, every clinical psychologist worth his salt would tell you that if he gave those projective techniques, that he could tell whether a person was gay or not. No such thing. I showed they couldn't. When Bruno did the judging, and every, people said, you'll never get away with this, you know, you, he, your face will reveal it. You'll know. I said, oh, nonsense. Uh, anyway, and he's the great Rorschach expert, and every day, I think we spent 10 days just going over one after the other, and one after the other. And, but that was, of course, it was terribly exciting to see Bruno, who said, you must let me know after, where I made the errors afterwards. And then he would say, 
oh, I knew, I knew there was something about that. I knew there was something about that. <laughs> but they're, they're terribly exciting days, terribly exciting days. See, I presented that paper at a meeting of the American Psychological Association in Chicago. Uh, the adjustment of the male overt, male overt homosexual. Right, okay. right. The air was electric. It was just electric. And of course, there were people, some, not too many, but there were some people who were saying, well, that, of course, that can't be right. And they set off to try to prove that I was crazy. The hardliners among the psychoanalysts, they would as soon shoot me as look at me. Why was it so electric? Well, if you're challenging a long and commonly held position, and you know that there are thousands of lives at stake. I think everybody who, who uh, unless they were severely prejudiced, as lots of people are, uh, you know, uh, that uh, in general it was a very exciting, very exciting concept. What was the impact of your, of your study then, ultimately? That I had made it a respectable field of study. It started a whole spate of pieces of research by gay and straight psychologists alike who had the courage to do it after I had done it, and who came up with bits and pieces of this formulation. What means most to me, I think, is, um, excuse me while I cry, if I went to a gathering of some kind, gay gathering of some kind, I was sure to have at least one person come up to me and say, I've wanted to meet you because I wanted to tell you what you saved me from. I'm thinking of a, of a woman, a young woman, who came up to me in a meeting and said that her parents Put, when they discovered that she was a lesbian, put her in a psychiatric hospital. And that the standard procedure in that hospital was uh, electroshock. But that her psychiatrist was familiar with my work and he was able to keep them from giving it to her. With tears showing down her face. I know that well, <laughs> I know that wherever I go, whether I know it or not, that there are both men and women for whom my little bit of work and my caring enough to do it has made an enormous difference in their lives. So I feel that that's my monument. It's a hell of a monument. Yes, it is. When Dr. Hooker got back from the Chicago convention, she met up with a group of the gay men she interviewed for her study at an L.A. restaurant, and she shared the results with them. But one person who never knew the results was Sam Fromm, Dr. Hooker's friend. He's the one who urged her to do the study in the first place. He was killed in a car crash before the study was finished. 
The last time I talked with Dr. Hooker was in 1992. By then she had circulatory problems and she couldn't travel. So she missed the premiere of the documentary about her life at the Castro Theater. That's in the heart of San Francisco's gay community. But I was there. And as soon as I got home, I called Dr. Hooker with a full report about the audience's reaction. They gave it a standing ovation. That was for you, I told her. I can't remember what she said, uh, but I'll never forget the emotion in her voice. She was so thrilled and delighted. I wish she could have been there. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. In 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed an executive order that essentially banned gay people from federal employment. It was an incredibly paranoid time in our nation's history. The anti-communists thought they saw subversives behind every tree and traitors under every rock. So the federal government set out to fire all employees they believed threatened the nation's security. And gay people were a huge risk. Why? Because they could be blackmailed by foreign spies. And why could they be blackmailed? Because they had to keep secret they were gay. And why did they have to keep secret that they were gay? Because they could be fired from their jobs, lose their homes, even lose their families if anyone knew they were gay. Don't bother trying to figure out that logic, because it'll make your head explode. One of the people who lost his job because he was a known homosexual was an astronomer employed by the Army Map Service named Frank Kameny. They had no idea what they were doing when they fired Frank. Frank wound up becoming one of the most militant and important thinkers and leaders of the LGBT civil rights movement long before it was called the LGBT civil rights movement or even the gay rights movement. So I went to Washington to interview Frank. It was a surprisingly mild early June day when I arrive at Frank's house in Washington, D.C. It's a modest two-story post-war brick colonial in a leafy, prosperous neighborhood just outside the center of the city. His house is a bit scruffy around the edges with a lawn that, that could use some attention too. So Frank greets me at the door wearing a white button-down shirt and gray slacks. He looks like a retired scientist out of central casting, and he's a bit scruffy around the edges, too. So Frank strikes me as the kind of person you'd expect to have a pocket protector in a shirt pocket filled with a half-dozen pens and pencils. I don't get a tour of the house. We go directly to Frank's office. There are files and unidentifiable dust-covered piles everywhere. Frank takes a seat behind his desk. He motions for me to sit and is ready to go. I quickly clip the microphone to his shirt because I don't want to miss a word. He's already talking as if he's addressing an auditorium filled with hundreds instead of an audience of one. A lesson I learned a long time ago is that when a bulldozer is coming toward you, get out of the way. Frank was a bulldozer, and I'm going to get out of the way and let him tell his story. Interview with Frank Kameny, June 3, 1989, at the home of Frank Kameny in Washington, D.C. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. You will learn when you talk to me that I cast my sentences by putting all the modifying clauses and word, no, at the beginning, and you have to listen and, and go along, and ultimately you'll find what it is that I am modifying. So, my tendency is to interrupt, so we, 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 right. whenever, whenever you need to. All right. So, uh, I was called in and said that we have information which leads us to believe that you are a homosexual. Do you have any comment? I said, what's the information? They said, we can't tell you. And I said, well, then I can't give you an answer. You don't deserve it. And in, and in any case, this is none of your business, which got them upset because bureaucrats never like to be told that something is none of their business. 
that basically was the interview. Ultimately, uh, it resulted in my termination late that year. You must have been shocked. Yes, of course. And How do they do it? Do they come into your office? No, they, they, they issue uh, the way the government does anything. They, they, they issue you a letter. And, uh, Did they say we're dismissing you because you're homosexual? Yes, for, for homosexuality. Such firings were not uncommon in, those, in that period. Were, were you depressed by it? Naturally, because I had no source of income. And uh, the, next, the next two or three years were extremely difficult. In fact, uh, by the time I got into 1959, I was living for about eight months on 20 cents worth of food a day, which even by 1959 prices uh, was not terribly much. It was, a, it was a great day when I could afford five cents more and put a, 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 a pat of butter on my um, uh, mashed potato. Meanwhile, by that time, I had decided that uh, basically what this amounted to was a declaration of war against me by my government. A, I don't grant my government uh, the right to declare war against me, and B, I tend not to lose my wars. I went through such appeal procedures as there were, which take you through the lower level of the uh, bureaucracy, and then uh, on the philosophy that ultimately the head of the executive branch of the government is the president, you go to the top, and I have always gone to the top on these things, so I worked my way right on up, without success, ultimately to uh, letters to the president. I, my feeling is that you always pursue things to their to final conclusion. I was put in touch with a local attorney who had been a congressman and who was willing then, having exhausted everything, my having exhausted everything, to take my case on a contingent fee basis, since I had no money. In 1960, the U.S. Court of Appeals turned it down, and he indicated that uh, he felt it was hopeless, and uh, um, uh, therefore he didn't uh, want to pursue it further. I said I did, so he gave me a copy of the Supreme Court rules, told me about filing uh, pro se documents. Pro se means for yourself. And in theory, any citizen can any time uh, do anything that a lawyer do, will do, can do it for himself if he chooses. It's not always wise, mm -hmm. but you have the prerogative under our system always of doing it for yourself. You're, you're, you're not required to have a lawyer. I had the, the rule book. I don't know if you're familiar with Supreme Court procedure. But it's a double round. You have two knocks at the door. Your first no or, or two chances. Your first effort is a knock at the door to say, will you let me in or won't you let me in? And if they say no, that ends it. If they say yes, then you prepare all your briefs and really go at it. Present later. Yes. And the first knock is called a petition for writ of certiorari. And uh, so he gave me some other petitions. And whenever I had questions, my philosophy then as now is, I pay for the government with my taxes, therefore they had to serve me. So if I had questions, I called up the Supreme Court or walked over there and said, here's my question, give me an answer. Which they did, very nicely, not the, not the justices, obviously. And uh, I ultimately drafted and filed my own petition. The government put then put its uh, disqualification of gays under the rubric of immoral conduct. The word simply does not belong in any issuance in this country. Morality is a matter of personal opinion and individual belief on which any American citizen may hold any view he wishes and upon which the government has no proper power or authority to have any view at all. But more than that, you then having stated a general principle, you have to apply it very specifically and pointedly to the case at hand, and that was that in my view, homosexuality is not only not immoral, but is affirmatively moral. 
and that was the theme that underlay that, and, and, and that was the direct address to the uh, government's policy. And it had to be said, and nobody else had ever said it that I know of in, in any kind of a formal court president or, or other, other formal pleading. And in March, uh, not unpredictably, came the letter, as I recall, it was on blue paper, I still have it upstairs, for a sign by uh, uh, Chief Justice Warren, indicating that I had been, uh, that certiorari had been denied. All right, that ended the formal case. The battle went on for uh, um, another 14 years. What the, what the government essentially did is they turned an intellectual bookish yeah. into a radical. Thank you for using that word. I have had cases over the years that I've handled of meek, mild, unassertive, unaggressive people who just want to go about doing their work and suddenly they are hit hard, they are trampled upon with the hobnailed boots, and suddenly it does exactly that, it radicalizes them, and off they go marching militantly. And case after case after case. So anyway... So by 61, you had become radicalized. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So anyway... Oh boy, they didn't know what they were So doing we founded the organization, and um, now the movement of those days, and I say this next, not critically and not uh, necessarily derogatorily, because it was a very, very, very different era. And we were sick, we were sinners, we were perverts, you have your long litany of uh, pejoratives. There was absolutely nothing whatsoever which anybody heard at any time, anywhere, at all, which was other than negative. Nothing. And so the movement, uh, predictably, in retrospect, uh, responded accordingly, and that was the nature of the movement. So people were frightened they had good reason to be. But when it was not only frightened, it was simply a lack of uh, uh, in, uh, intellectual strength. We had to defer to the experts. Oh, you hated that, didn't you? My answer was, we are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. But it took a few years to get that across. <laughs> the movement of those days was a very unassertive, apologetic, defensive kind of structure, not taking strong positions, giving a hearing to everybody and saying, all views must be heard, even those which were most harshly uh, and viciously condemnatory, as long as it dealt with homosexuality, they must be given a fair hearing. Drivel. And uh, I, that didn't suit my personality. And the Madison Society of Washington was formed around my personality. We characterized ourselves within, ourselves within the movement as an activist militant organization. Well, those were very dirty words in those days in, in the movement, such as it was, 61 and 62. There was no, there were, no one else was, except for the no. civil rights movement was just, yeah. just here. So it was up. just beginning, but I mean, even within the gay movement, even more so, you weren't supposed to be. Did you have an overall goal, a plan that you stated what you were going to do as an organization? Well, that was sort of set up in our statement of purposes, which I could dig out. Generally, what was it? Uh, generally, to work for gay rights, although gay rights as such wasn't necessarily the phrase of choice of those days. Right. But uh, to, to achieve equality for homosexuals and homosexuality uh, against heterosexuals and heterosexuality. Uh -huh. 
that was equality, I guess, was so the primary that theme. That wasn't born in 69. Those ideas. Oh, certainly not. We lay, the 69 wouldn't have happened if we hadn't come along. But as you well know, that's not how it... Uh, well, they're to, wrong. Right. They would not... They, uh, we, we started, to, to digress before I get back, uh, we started picketing in here in 65, which first created the mindset uh, which allowed for gays doing openly public things by way of demonstration as gays there would not have been Stonewall if they hadn't already gotten, uh, if the mindset hadn't already been established for that by us in 65, with our subsequent demonstrations year by year, which were widely publicized in New York at Independence Hall every 4th of July each year after 65. And, and which was being publicized in 69 in preparation for that one when Stonewall occurred. And it would have never have occurred to gay people to do anything publicly if we hadn't already started it. What happened to your case, though? My case was dead with the dead. Supreme Court. That ended that permanently. Okay. The commission changed its rule in '75. Yes. Do you recall? You must recall what uh, first hearing about that. Oh, they they uh, they called me up. They knew. I mean, I by that time I was on. Uh, I speak with obvious hyperbole and figuratively on virtually daily communication with the general counsel of the Civil Service Commission. He knew my cases. He knew other things had come along. He uh, so people were coming. To he, you oh yes, he had informed me 18 months before in '73 that they were beginning the process of changing their policy. But there were a lot of minds that had to be changed inside the commission. And he informed me that it was going to come out on July 4th. Except that July 4th was a holiday, so it was going to have to be July 3rd, very appropriately. And uh, that's when they issued the news release and the formal change in policy. July 3rd, 1975. 75. Yes. Of course, in 78, under the Carter administration, the Civil Service Reform Act went through Congress, and that abolished the Civil Service Commission under that name. It's the Office of Personnel Management, the OPM, changed all the laws. So that's one battle, one book that has nicely been closed and put on the shelf as a complete success. So at this point, I'm sort of, uh, I don't know, people call me a living legend. I've or heard that uh, uh, Do you like being called a living legend? It doesn't bother me. Uh -huh. uh, no, it's, it's complimentary. Or the, uh, humorously, uh, the, uh, the world's oldest living homosexual. <laughs> Or the grandfather, or the great grandfather of the gay movement, which it was not, which is not technically correct, right. as you well know. But life takes its turnings, and you don't foresee them. But ultimately, I think, uh, in retrospect, life has been more uh, exciting and stimulating, and interesting, and satisfying, and rewarding, and fulfilling than I ever could possibly have dreamed it would have been. I hope that by hearing Frank's voice and a bit of his story that you have a sense of why he continues to inspire me and so many others. There are three key lessons that Frank has taught me that I want to share with you. Have confidence in your beliefs, fight for what's right, and even in the darkest of times, never ever give up. We're recording this two days after the election and part of me feels like giving up. I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm heartsick. 
but part of me also feels like I need to do something on my own and collectively. So I'm going to hang on to Frank's fighting spirit for inspiration and remind myself that he didn't give up. I shouldn't give up. We shouldn't give up. Not now. Not ever. No way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an Outbeat Extra and a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia, and we're going to continue with our third interview tonight with Eric Marcus and Barbara Giddings. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen were a pair of happy warriors who battled their way through decades of the LGBT civil rights movement. Over two visits in the spring and winter of 1989, I spent five hours with Barbara and Kay in their cozy living room in Philadelphia. Barbara first found her way into the movement in the mid-1950s, and Kay found Barbara in 1961. Together, they devoted most of their lives to the cause. Now, I can't do justice to describing these two extraordinary people, so have a look at one of their early photographs on makinggayhistory.com. It'll light up your screen. Interview with Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin Lahusen, Wednesday, May 17, 1989, at the home of Barbara and Kay in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. Kay? Kay? Yeah, what? I need some coffee. I'm, I'm making right now. And the fruit we should get out that's oh. on the front porch. I want to ask you about, uh, I'll save America. Bring you some blue bowls. I'll say Americans for gay rights. Ah, yes. Bring out the fruit bowl from the... And there are a couple of knives I had out. Take care of your whistling. It never fails. I'm a musical person. I want a whistling kettle. I get a shrieking kettle. <laughs> we have a harmonic kettle. You do? What does it do? It's, uh, it, it Westminster has, chimes? It's frightening. It's, it's off-key. Right? <laughs> when did the two of you first meet? 1961. Mm-hmm. At a picnic in uh, Rhode Island, uh, whose purpose was to pull together some women to try to start a Daughters of Belitis chapter in uh, the New England area. Do you remember what you felt the first time you saw Barbara? The first time I saw her? No, I thought she was a very interesting person. (laughs) (laughs) I was quite taken with her. (laughs) And you? And I was taken with her. I happened to answer the door when uh, she rang the bell for this uh, picnic, and I was very taken because this was not at all what I had expected. She expected some mousy little old lady, I think, to turn up when I turned up. Because I knew that she worked for the Christian Science Monitor, and my stereotypes were (laughs) such that I expected this rather mousy, door type of person, and she was everything, anything but when she turned up at the door. You know, bright, cheerful colors and... uh, red hair, and uh, just awfully attractive. And we started talking and jabbering away. And you were coming from where at that time? You were visiting from what city? Well, I lived in Boston. I wrote to all of the women on DOB's mailing list who were within a 100-mile radius of um, Rhode Island and invited them to try to start a chapter up there. But that was a fortuitous invitation. Yes, very much so. <laughs> 
brought her into my life. Well, in those days, Eric, you have to realize that there were like, you know, five people who might have been possible <laughs> for the Rhode Island chapter. I mean, it was nothing. It was just a I think we had all of, all of 12 or 15 people at this picnic, and that was a big <laughs> turnout, really? a really big turnout in those was days. Was it that many? It seemed, I think it was about that. What kinds of people came to the picnic? Well, we were certainly a motley crew in those were days. Were married, married women who came? Married? married women, possible. Nobody stands out in my memory from that uh, particular Marge time. Marge and her hopeless love for Jan. Jan didn't reciprocate. And then an, an older woman who wasn't with anyone, but she told Barbara to go after me. I was a cute little package. Which <laughs> <laughs> really I, ticked me off. Oh, yes. It's been a standing joke with us ever since. <laughs> but... <laughs> I, frankly, Eric, in the beginning days of the movement, I'll tell you, the people who turned up were, by and large, pretty oddball. <laughs> you know, because in the early movement, it was so such an unpopular right. thing to do. When most gay people were trying to blend in and pass. You were saying you had to be a little... Yes, you had to be a little bit mm. unconventional mm. to be willing to come out to to meetings of a group like that. And you had to have some reason to want a crusade, in spite of whatever it might cost you. What? what got me started in the movement was I found in 1953 or so a book called The Homosexual in America, A Subjective yes. Approach by Donald Webster Corey. Yes. His book was very much a call to arms. He was saying that we ought to be working to, to gain our equality and our, and our civil rights. So I met him and found out from him that there were organizations of homosexual people. Was that a stunning revelation? Yes, yes, I didn't realize that there were such groups. We're using the term of the day, homosexual. Not gay. Right. Gay didn't come until the late 60s. Was lesbian so we used, used at the time? Mm -hmm. Yes, but not as much. Well, it was Homo in the statement of purpose of DOB, honey. Lesbian. The variant. Oh, the variant. That was the variant. <laughs> they didn't call her lesbian at all. They called her the variant. <laughs> never, Brilliant. never. I forgot that. The variant. <laughs> so, but anyway, I found out from Corey about the existence um, of a, an organization called One Incorporated in Los Angeles. Lo and behold, the next uh, vacation that I had, I arranged to take a plane out to uh, Los Angeles. And they told me about the Mattachine Society in San Francisco. So I hopped another plane and went up to San Francisco and uh, talked to them. And they told me about the Daughters of Belitis, which had formed a year ago and was about to uh, start a magazine. And it was founded by... Uh, eight women, including Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. I did accept an invitation to come to a meeting, and then I found myself in a living room in a normal social setting with 12 other lesbians, and it was a marvelous experience. And I just sat there sort of reveling in the company. Uh, it's, it wasn't a bar setting. These were nice women, and it made a big difference. But I didn't actually join Daughters of Belitis until two years later in 1958. So 58, you decided, what made you decide? I was invited by Dell and Phyllis in San Francisco to help start a New York chapter. I guess they had sized me up as someone who'd be willing to take the, uh, take the bit and run a little. How many women in, in the New York chapter when you started out? Official members, you might have had 10. In all of New York City? Official <laughs> members, yes, but a lot more turned up for the, the social events, the, uh, what, the 30, public lectures. If we were lucky. That was a lot. That for, was a lot. That was a lot for an invisible people at a time when you could hardly poke your nose out. Daughters of Belitis didn't have big public lectures. Mattachine did. 
but we, but we, we members of Daughters of Bolinas would go. And sometimes we would co-sponsor. Mm -hmm. So we'd sort of hitch with Mattachine's big, greater strength to, to get our name onto something. And it was usually <laughs> a lecture on the law and changing the law. Or, or on changing homosexuality. Or uh, with some <laughs> psychotherapist. Yeah, or some shrink. Yeah, some shrink looking for uh, for clients or uh, uh, to cure, usually. Or or a gay therapist who wasn't out, and who just got up and gave an academic <laughs> paper on. Uh, or there were there were. Fritz, what did he always used to talk about? Monkeys and things, you know, homosexuality and <laughs> animals or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> These lectures were really excuses to at get which, together. Yes, to get together and to, and to let people uh, come out a little bit. The content of the lecture really didn't matter that much. We really needed the recognition that we got from these people who were names in law and ministry and the mental health profession. They had a credential and they were willing to to come and address a meeting of ours instead of ignoring us entirely. That was important. But just by coming. Just by coming and recognizing our existence and, and our being a legitimate audience that gave us a boost. Most gay people <clears throat> in New York who had any kind of income were going to the therapist. What did the therapist tell them at this time? Usually trying to cure them. Fix them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see, I decided at 18 I was right and the world was wrong. <laughs> but uh, the people who were in New York were in that uh, intellectual uh, stew pot there, and the going theory at the time was that uh, you were sick and you should go to the doctor and get turned around, uh, deep analysis, find out what went wrong in your childhood, and so forth. Not too many people just... Uh, you know, thought for themselves. And but uh, anyway, we'd have these events, and then Daughters of Belitis had uh, its own socials and what were called Gab and Java sessions. Literally, talk and coffee, and there was a topic uh, for discussion in the e that evening. Topics like uh, telling your parents, uh, going to the therapist, <laughs> Uh, legal legal issues, legal problems, whatever was the going... Should lesbians uh, wear skirts? Oh, yeah. Uh, acceptance by the world at large. Problems. Well, there was, that was a big thing, yeah. yeah. But uh, Gus would tell endlessly about her therapist and what her therapist said. <laughs> therapy was just Very big. Uh, the overriding thing then. I mean, law reform was secondary in politics. You know, and yet, I was, obviously, I was beginning to feel my crusading oats a little bit. I couldn't help it. And yet I didn't have a very clear sense of what we were doing and why we were doing it. I sort of, we sort of bumbled along. But where we were going, if you'd asked me, I probably wouldn't have been able to say very clearly. How did you develop an awareness? So then at this point, it's a point. Well, Kay was, Kay was a big help because Kay's got a very, very clear mind and some very definite ideas about the world. Much well, the more... Mattachine guys pushed things along. After all, they did a sit-in in a bar and demanded to be served. This was the sip-in that I've interviewed a couple of people on this event. And that was watch. very important. Well, and we're moving along, but and this Randy coincided... Randy Wicker was the first to picket. He got out and picketed. Yes, the, he picketed at Whitehall Induction oh. Center in 1962 or 1963. And yes, and this, this is beginning to filter through to me, that, that you could do things like but that. But I think even before the, you know, the, the real activism, Barbara and I were unhappy with the daughters of Belinus. Uh, posture and it was a kind of a scolding was, teacher attitude. It was now you lesbians had better put on a skirt and shape up and hold a job and go to work 9 a.m. to 5 <laughs> 
and make the, yourselves acceptable make to the world, acceptable. and then you can expect something of the world right. in return. And then you know, it was the you know the scolding the laggard lesbian. Right. And we didn't That's somehow right. it really didn't sit well with us. It was pointed toward the uh, ne'er do wells who would loll around in the gay bar all day long, and um, and we didn't know as any if of those. as if this was the majority the, of us, the most of us. Whereas the most of us really were in skirts, Already. fitting in all too tightly. Right, with, with <laughs> very painfully wearing the mask. I know I did at the monitor. I was in a skirt every day, fitting in all too tightly. We didn't like it, and we thought it was very demeaning, and we thought it was very inappropriate. And it seemed to me that at every national convention of Daughters of Belitis, Kay and I would come up with radical proposals right. that were always voted right. down. Right, we, we didn't want the name. <laughs> The name we wanted memberships changed. for men. We wanted associate memberships for men. We wanted to change the name of the magazine. See, we wanted to change the, the composition of the national board. The was called The Ladder because you were supposed to climb up the ladder. Did you ever see the covers and of the first few And into the human issues? race on an okay basis. This very badly drawn. The, the first six issues or so had this picture, uh, a ladder, literally, from some <laughs> kind of a... Uh, no, a muddy, muddy marshland <laughs> with some vaguely humanoid figures down there in this ladder up into the clouds and the sky. And it was really... Oh, a little lesbian is beginning to climb the ladder. <laughs> Upgrading herself so that she will become an I okay person instead of a, a variant who has a poor self-image, I think who doesn't go to work nine to right. five, who doesn't hold a regular job, who isn't a participating member of society, as if there weren't thousands of lesbians who were already... Fitting you know, in all too well. Great contributors to society. No what recognition needed, of them. Right. What they needed was support, uh, uh, help to get the bigots off their backs, right. and ways to meet other lesbians. They didn't need the the uh, the, 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 the teaching. They didn't right. need to be taught. They really didn't need to have to learn that much right. about the themselves. But education of the variant was one of the big things in Daughters of Belitis. Well, we were sort of itching under all of this. And yet we stuck with Daughters of Belitis for several years especially because DOB was then joining with several other gay groups uh, in the East to form what was called ECHO, East Coast Homophile Organizations. The word homophile was very big in the late 50s and the early 60s. Homosexual was deemed too clinical, and so they tried to conjure up this word. <clears throat> homophile was the word they came up clinical. with. It was, also, it was also supposed to mean that you could be heterosexual and support the organization and belong to it. It the was, theory was you could make up your own <laughs> word, but it never did sail. Anyway, we met Frank Kameny at one of the Echo conferences. In the early 60s. Early 60s. He was fantastic. He'd been discharged. He was an astronomer and physicist. Did you read my chapter on him? I mean, <laughs> yes. he is so eccentric. You'll have to forgive a lot. I've met him. But he's worth it. But he was, he was a big influence on me because he had such a clear and compelling vision of what the movement should be doing. And, and that just, was, that was that we should be standing up and demanding our full equality and our full rights and the hell with the sickness issue. They put the label on us. They, they're the ones that, that need to justify it. Let them do their justification. We're not going to help the them. the burden of proof is on them. In the absence of uh, valid evidence to the contrary, homosexuality is not a, what, is no kind impairment, of, right. blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Malfunction, disorder of any kind, it is fully on par with heterosexuality and fully the equal of it. And when he put that forward as a... Uh, credo. Yes, a credo for the movement in 1964, it was the most radical thing that had come down the pipe. And DOB said, no, we can't take a position on it. 
DOB was one of the groups that wouldn't go along with it. They said, nobody will listen to us. We have to get the professionals to say we're okay. We so can't we say it for we had better ourselves. help them with their research studies and all of that. And once the professionals say we're okay, then, we'll, then the world will accept it. And Frank said, this is rubbish. He <laughs> said, if we stand up and say we're right, and nobody listens, we will not have lost anything. But if, if somebody listens, we even will if have it, gained Even if it's something. only one gay person who needs a and little reinforcement. even if uh, it's only the gay people who listen, we will still have gained something. <laughs> so anyway, so, what happened we was, had, we, I were, we, were we were catapulted into this we were vigorous intellectual back and forth, we, where DOB was back in the mire of wanting to upgrade the variant, <laughs> and we were saying, Oh, well, this is nothing wrong with a variant. It's society. That's right. That was the shift that Frank helped uh, put into focus for us. Well, uh, he packaged it. Well, he, and he, yes, he did. And he marketed it. That is, he really pushed for its acceptance by the ECHO affiliate organizations <laughs> at these ECHO meetings. Right. And, of course, this was a very uneasy alliance because DOB wasn't ready to go along with all this stuff. Well, that's... And for one thing, it was the intellectual East versus... San Francisco, <laughs> where well, they had nice coffee clutches and all that, right? And Florence said, Florence um, Conrad, yes, yes, this isn't the kind of subject matter that can be marketed like toothpaste. And he said, and oh, Frank yes, it said, can. unfortunately, this can be marketed like toothpaste. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, well, poor D.O.B., they had never been grabbed by the short hairs and shaken up this way in their lives, these San Francisco ladies. But what happened was we were editing the latter around that time. Well, Barbara was the editor. I was the nominal editor. Worked. Actually, we both worked on it. Of the latter. And, Eric, we would go out and would distribute it ourselves. We would go to newsstands. We had... And to bookstores. Only two places in New York would mm -hmm. take it. We tried distributors. They wouldn't touch and it. This was a labor of love. You've got to realize you're talking to two fanatics here. <laughs> I mean, we spent our own gas money and our own everything to do this. I mean, we were living on a shoestring. I mean, we are like, you know, the little old lady in tennis shoes, to use a sexist phrase, lady. We have a little old lady in tennis shoes here locally who's outside our supermarket handing out her socialist literature all the time. That's us in the gay movement, you know what I mean? <laughs> Little old ladies in tennis shoes, living on a shoestring, totally fanatics, well, uh, caught up in a cause. You're caught up in it, and, and it, there, there's tremendous uh, reward. Sure, there are setbacks, but there's a satisfaction in, in seeing the accomplishment and seeing the progress forward. Um, for every setback, we've made three major uh, strides forward. Wouldn't have it any other way. I can't imagine not being gay. What would life have been like? Dull? Dismal? <laughs> decrepit? <laughs> well, Barbara likes to say she's, she's a, um, she loves organizations, and she would have joined the conservation cause or oh, the that's Save true. the Wilderness or Save the Whales sure. or something. But the gay but, movement is so much <clears throat> more fun. <laughs> I've had such a good time. If it sounds like Barbara and Kay's work on the latter was just the warm-up phase of their activism, well, that's because it was. By 1965, they were out on the picket line at the White House and the Pentagon with Frank Kameny for some of the first public protests by gay people. And even those historic protests were just a prelude to what Barbara and Kay did after the Stonewall Uprising. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the people who are part of the Making Gay History archive. We have dozens more interviews, which you can listen to on our website, 
and we're working on a new season of episodes focusing on the Stonewall Uprising. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com. Thanks, Eric. What a treat it is to have you on the air with us sharing some of these priceless conversations. And there's still one more Outbeat Extra this year to come. Look for it on the fifth Sunday of December. If you missed the websites that Eric shared during the show, we'll have them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCBFM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. Don't forget you can listen to past shows on our website at OutbeatRadio.com and OutbeatNews.com. There you can subscribe to podcasts of Outbeat News In-Depth, available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Be sure to follow all of the news stories we're tracking using our social media sites with links at OutbeatNews.com. And the KRCB mobile app is always the best way to take Outbeat Radio and KRCB with you wherever you go. You can listen to live radio, podcasts of previous shows, and much more from anywhere with internet access. The app is free and available to download right now for your Apple and Android device. Radio 91 KRCB-FM Windsor and K215-CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. Barbara died on February 18, 2007. She was 74. Kay lives in an assisted living facility outside Philadelphia. She's 86.